This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. DigitalOcean is the easiest cloud platform to deploy, manage, and scale applications of any size, removing infrastructure friction and providing predictability so developers and their teams can deploy faster and focus on building software the customers love. DigitalOcean stands out from the crowd due to its simplicity, high performance, and no billing surprises. Join a community of over 3.5 million developers on DigitalOcean. Sign up with a free credit at do.co slash seradio. For Software Engineering Radio, this is Robert Blumen. Today, I have with me Chris Richardson. Chris is an experienced software architect and consultant active in the field of microservices. His startup, Eventuate.io, provides a platform for the development of transactional microservices. Chris is the publisher of the website, microservices.io, and the author of the recently published book, Microservice Patterns, which we will be talking about today. Chris, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Well, thanks. I'm pleased to be here. Chris, would you like to tell the listeners anything about yourself that I didn't cover in the bio? Well, I think he just about covered it. I mean, I these days, I, as well as working on my startup, I basically travel the world helping clients um, adopt microservices through a combination of consulting and training. Let's get on to microservice patterns. We have done a number of other shows on microservices, including number 213, uh, 210 on architecture and microservices, and 351 on orchestrating microservices. So we're not going to do an in-depth review, but tell the listeners, what does microservices mean to you? So today, you know, like software technology or the ability to deliver software rapidly, frequently, and reliably is becoming essential to most, if not all, organizations, right? You know, the whole concept of software is eating the world. And so in order to deliver software rapidly, frequently, and reliably, you need a combination of, um, should we say, three things. First is you need to embrace DevOps, right? A set of practices, essentially a software development methodology. You need to structure your engineering organization into small autonomous teams, so-called two pizza teams, although that's somewhat of an imprecise metric. And then lastly, you need an architecture that supports all of this. And on the one hand, if you're building relatively small applications, you can probably get away with using the monolithic architecture. But if, you're, if you've got a large number of developers and you're building a large complex application, chances are you actually need to use the microservice architecture. And essentially the microservice architecture breaks up what would otherwise be a monolith into a set of relatively small, but not tiny services that can individually be developed and tested and deployed and scaled 
by by the team that owns them. I want to move on now and talk about design patterns or microservice patterns. When the book Design Patterns came out some 20 years ago, I believe the authors did not see themselves as really originating these ideas. They were more documenting solutions to problems that had been discovered and, and proven themselves over time. With your work on microservice patterns, what is your assessment of the state of the community in terms of adoption? Is there an agreed upon set of best practices or is this more your view of how things should be done? I would say my book is kind of a combination of both. I mean, you're right. I mean, in, in many ways, there's no such thing as a, a new pattern. You know, it, it, it's really a kind of essentially a labeling and a, a more formal description of something that has existed within whatever field you're studying for some period of time and, and has demonstrated itself to be generally useful. So sort of, you know, so a lot of identifying patterns is really just mining what people are doing, perhaps in some cases giving them a name and then kind of trying to distill down a description of the solution but then also describe the benefits and the drawbacks of that particular approach. So it's sort of a way of structuring something that has existed out there already. Would it be fair to say then these patterns become a toolbox for architects to build their own microservice-based architecture? Yeah, I think that, that's a good way of thinking about it. I mean, one of, one of, sort of one of the key ideas with patterns in general and say, and, and sort of my book in particular, is that when you apply a pattern, right, and the pattern, you know, the definition of a pattern is a reusable solution to a problem, you apply a pattern that actually solves some problem. You know, in the case of the microservice architecture, the problem you're trying to solve is, how do I structure my application in a way that requires rapid, reliable, and frequent delivery of software? But at the same time, that actually it, invariably it creates sub-problems. Um, for instance, you know, with a microservice architecture, it, one obvious sub-problem is, well, how do you break up your system into a set of services? And then there's also a whole bunch of patterns related to well, you're now building a distributed system. And, and, and so there's some set various problems around that. And so it's essentially you, you apply one pattern that creates sub problems, which you then apply other patterns to solve. And effectively, you're sort of, you know, you're doing that recursively, so to speak. And so these patterns form a web of interrelated patterns. And so when you are creating an architecture, you're essentially traversing this graph, selecting patterns, and then selecting patterns to the subproblems and so on and so forth. So it actually kind of provides a, a structure to this problem space 
and and tells architects what problems they're gonna, they're gonna they're, they're gonna encounter, but and then also how to solve them. Given that design patterns, they are the solution to a problem. What are some of the problems posed by microservices that you don't have with the monolith that require a new and different set of patterns to solve? Yeah. So first problem is, what services am I going to have? You know, it's like that's the the key question. You know, it's not oh. You know, which deployment technology are we going to have? Should we use serverless versus Docker or anything like that? In reality, a lot of those technical issues that people tend to focus on are much more like a detail. So number one is what services are you going to have? And then once, and there's some patterns for that. And then once you've, you've come up with a set of services, it's like, oh, well, one of the key, you know, one key aspect of the microservice architecture is that each service's data is encapsulated within that service. And that immediately creates two sub-problems. How do you implement transactions that span services? And then how do you, how do you implement queries that span services? And, and so, that then leads to the saga pattern, which is a way of managing transactions. And then there's a couple of querying patterns, API composition and CQRS, that solve the querying part of it. So that's sort of like, you know, sort of, if you think of it as ending, well, it's kind of a graph or a tree. Yeah, that's one major sort of sub-branch that you, of pattern solution, problem solution pairs that you end up going down. To summarize, you're drawing attention to uh, going from uh, centralized data to distributed data, possibly multiple data stores as introducing a whole set of problems that the architect has to solve. Is, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Just wanted to summarize that. I would say a point of clarification is on the one hand, services might actually have, in a, in a very literal sense, their own database server. But quite often, all, all you need is sort of a, kind of a logical separation of data. So like uh, uh, you could have a shared relational database server, and then on that server, each service can have its own database schema. So logical division. Now, obviously, it all depends on the scale and the com scale and complexity of your application. But I don't want anyone who's listening to go, oh, my God, I have to buy 10x as many name your database vendor licenses in, in order to do microservices. What I think you're talking about is in a monolithic application, there could be one single schema. And, uh, if it's in a relational database, I'm free to write a query that joins the user table to the orders table to the product table to the product description table. And there's no limit on how big of a SQL join I can write as long as it will run. But in microservices, at minimum, you might have user orders product in their own microservice, and they might still all be on the same server, but you're not going to allow SQL to join across 
those uh, boundaries because they're a minimum. It's a logical boundary. Is that where you're going with that point? Yeah, that's exactly right. The the, the, the tables of a service are essentially equivalent to the private fields of a class. They are, they are it's part of its implementation and they are hidden from the outside world and they're only accessible indirectly through that services API. Great, so we've been talking about a set of problems that are caused by going from more of a distributed or partitioned data model. I believe you had another set of problems in your graph of, of problems that you were going to highlight that, that are uh, specific to the microservice architecture. Oh, yeah. So another sort of cl class of technical problems are, well, I've got a bunch of services and how, and then how do they communicate? Now, on the one hand, inter-process communication is, is sort of happens in a monolithic system because it, a monolithic application has to communicate with up other applications. But I would argue that the sort of the degree of complexity around that is significantly higher in a, in a microservice architecture because the part, the services that make up the application are having to communicate with one another. So it's sort of inter-process communication is much more central to your application architecture. And so there, there's this sort of pattern, basic patterns, like should you use asynchronous messaging versus synchronous communication mechanisms such as REST or gRPC? So that's, that's sort of one sort of sub-problem that you have to ad address. So let's move on to talking about what some of the patterns are. And since we're talking about communication, you do introduce these different families of communication patterns between microservices, synchronous and asynchronous. Could you break down when, when do you choose one, when do you choose the other, and what are the strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, so on the one hand, let's just say using REST is, is in a sense the de facto communication mechanism, right? You know, JSON, or to be more precise, JSON over HTTP, you know, that's super familiar. Everyone, you know, it work, obviously works with browsers, but then it's just super familiar. So, but on the one, so on the one hand, that is kind of simple to use, but on the other hand, that actually introduces tight runtime coupling between the services. You know, if, so if say the order service implements a REST API, and then it, while handling one of those requests, it has to make a synchronous call to the customer service and wait for a response to come back. Then in that situation, the there's temporal coupling between the two. The order service can't send back a response unless the customer service can send back a response. And suddenly the availability of that endpoint is you know, the availability of one service to the power two. And if you end up with more complex architectures and more complex patterns of interaction, the availability of your system or of your API starts to drop off dramatically. And so for those reasons, it, it's, it's actually preferable to, to rely on asynchronous communication as much as possible. 
And, and in fact, a common anti-pattern is to go, well, we're just going to break our system up into a bunch of services and they're going to communicate using HTTP, right, or REST. And, you know, there you've basically built a system that's tightly coupled at runtime with multiple points of failure. In your book, in your book, you introduce a recurring example of the food to go software as a service. Could you briefly describe that example and talk about a couple of points in food to go that would use synchronous and another one or two that would use asynchronous and why you choose one or the other? Oh, yeah. So it's an online food delivery application, you know, along the lines of Uber Eats or DoorDash or Deliveroo. And, you know, my first book, Pojo's in Action, which came out 13 years ago, had the same example, but it was it was a monolith. So the scenario envisaged in, in microservices patterns is, well, 10 plus years have gone by. And, and the and the food to go application has outgrown its monstrous or kind of it now has a monstrous monolith and is having problems delivering software rapidly. I'm sure we can all relate to that. It, yeah, it, it, it's it's an incredibly common scenario, right? So 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 in the case of the microservice version of that application, we take a request like placing an order. Several things have to happen when an order is placed. You have to do some validation around, can the consumer place orders? Is the order valid from the restaurant's perspective? Is the restaurant's kitchen willing to accept orders at this time? And then you also have to charge the consumer's credit card as well. So in the monolithic application, conceptually, all those happen within inside the monolith. But in the microservice architecture, the order service ends up collaborating asynchronously with numerous services, such as the consumer service, the kitchen service, and the accounting service. And it's also subscribing to a stream of events that are coming out of the restaurant service so that it has a replica of the restaurant's data in its own database so it doesn't actually have to interact with the restaurant service. I'm going to not go through every single one of those, but I'm going to pick one. Why would the collaboration with the accounting service be asynchronous? Well, one way to think about it is sort of the model is so there's a REST API, so the order service has a REST API to create an order. That API actually returns immediately saying, essentially saying the request to create this order has been received, check back later to see what the status of it is. And all of the processing required to basically find, validate and finalize that order um, happens asynchronously, in, uh, including charging the consumer's credit card. Now, in the normal case, that everything should happen within let's just say tens of milliseconds, well, maybe hundred, you know, within a few couple of hundred milliseconds or something like that. So from the user's perspective, the order could actually be processed instantaneously. But the nice thing is, is while one part of the system is temporarily down, orders will still be accepted, just that the 
processing of them might be delayed briefly. What you're driving at then is the decisions you make about what's synchronous and what's asynchronous will have an impact on the availability of the system and its ability to do work and accept business requests from the customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you end up with, with sort of asynchronous communication the the general availability of the system is higher it can tolerate it can still in this example accept requests to create orders even if part of the system is temporarily unavailable i can see out from this conversation when you talk about one thing it's hard to completely separate that from everything else and while we're talking about communication between microservices you're introducing issues around transactionality. And I do want to now explicitly move on and talk about transactionality uh, and, and how it's different. In microservice application, you mentioned the Saga pattern. What, what problem does the Saga pattern solve and, and how does it solve that? So basically, the Saga pattern is a way of implementing transactions that span services. So within a service, you have you know, traditional, assuming you're using a relational database, you have traditional ACID transactions. But between databases, it, it's sort of, you could say that using ACID transactions in the form of two-phase commit or XA has fallen out of fashion for a variety of reasons, including that two-phase commit is a form of synchronous communication which, as mentioned earlier, you know, impacts the availability of your system. So the idea with sagas is that instead of having a transaction that spans multiple services, um, a two-phase, two-PC two transaction that spans multiple services, you break it down into a series of local transactions in each one of the services that contains data that needs to be updated. So in the case, if we sim you know, a simple example that I use is imagine like in order to create, a, create an order, you have to check and reduce the customer's available credit. You know, imagine like there's a business rule that says the customer's credit, you know, customer has a credit limit that can never be violated. So in this example, you need to create an order and reduce the available credit so that and those are up so those are updates that need to be need to happen in both services uh, and and so the way that's done with a saga is you could for, for instance you create an order in one service in the order service in the pending state that then sends a message to the customer service to reserve credit and then the customer service sends back a message to the order service saying that credit was approved, was, was reserved, or maybe there was an insufficient credit. And then the order service can approve or reject that order. So, so you've broken it down into a set of st um, steps that are local with messaging as the co coordination mechanism between them. And, and so that's sort of an event, and so essentially that is an eventually consistent model for, for transactions. 
if we were in a monolith, I could do some code and it might not look exactly like this if you read the code because you have all this propagation of transactions through different layers, but we're still in the same process. So I could do begin transaction, save the user, debit the credit, insert the order, insert the charge information, insert delivery address and commit. And it's, yep. if everything goes well, it's all gonna be saved. Worst case is it wasn't saved, but we don't have this problem of we debited the credit and we inserted the delivery address, but no order was created. It's at least we can say it's all or nothing. Now, in the microservice world, you're talking about these things being in different services and some might fail, some might succeed. And you're solving that with this saga pattern. Seems to me for this to work, you need to ensure that uh, when you commit something that you've committed the message atomically along with the work that each microservice has done locally and that you're sure that the message will get delivered. Am I correct in going that direction? Yeah, it, it, it's it's funny. We're like digging, getting deeper into this graph of problem <laughs> problem solutions, right? We've gone from the microservice architecture to the database per service pattern to the saga pattern, and now we're in this what kind of sub problem area which I call transactional messaging. And it, now, interestingly, so yeah, as you identify, there's each step of the saga needs to do two things. First, it needs to update the database, create an order or update the customer's credit. And then it needs to send a message to say that it's done that. And ironically, in a traditional application, you might use a distributed transaction for that, that spanned the database and your message broker. But that's essentially the, the kind of technology that we're trying to avoid. And so in order to atomically update the database and publish a message, there's two patterns that you can use. So one pattern is the transactional outbox pattern. So this, this pattern, as part of the ACID transaction that updates the database, it inserts a message into an outbox table. So that's just done atomically. Right. And then there's a second step that is retrieving the message from that outbox table and publishing it to the message broker. And that that will give you the atomicity that you need, along with the and, and the guarantee that eventually that message will be published to the message broker. And the message broker is some technology like Kafka or RabbitMQ or something that handles the delivery of messages between the services. Correct. Yeah. So the message broker needs to provide certain guarantees. It needs to give you at least once delivery. It also needs to preserve, uh, guarantee or give you ordered delivery. The, these sort of mess these messages or events need to arrive in the order within which they were published. Otherwise, things could get really confusing. And so there are certain and, I, and there's another problem where you need to somehow scale up consumers while also guaranteeing delivery. And so message brokers that provide all three out of the box include Kafka and ActiveMQ. And then to 
scale out the consumers with other with a couple of other brokers it was um rabbit mq and also redis redis stream specifically you know the, the open source product that, um, project that i work on eventuate as you mentioned eventuate.io we ended up building an ex some extra code on top of those message brokers to enable scaling out consumers properly DigitalOcean is the easiest cloud platform to deploy, manage, and scale applications of any size, removing infrastructure friction and providing predictability so developers and their teams can develop faster and focus on building software that customers love. With thousands of in-depth tutorials and an active community, we provide the support you need. DigitalOcean stands out of the crowd due to its simplicity, high performance, and no billing surprises. Try DigitalOcean for free at do.co slash seradio. We have a show coming up on messaging architectures, which it doesn't have a show number yet because it hasn't been published, but it will be published by the time people are listening to this, and it will go into to some of these issues. In interest of time, we won't by any means be able to cover even all the major areas in your book, but I wanted to hit on some, some of the thought, stuff that I thought was the most interesting. Uh, I wanted to move on to another area, which is introduced near the beginning of querying, you introduce the pattern of the API gateway. What is that pattern and what problem does it solve? So the API gateway is one of the communication patterns and the area that it's focused on is the is what I call external API. So in other words, what API does the application expose to the, to the outside? which might be literally the outside, outside of the firewall, or it could just be other parts of the organization. If I have 100 microservices, they may not all be public. Correct. So the idea with the API gateway is that it's similar to the facade pattern in object-oriented design. It defines the public interface of your application. So clients talk to the API gateway and then it's responsible for implementing each, say, REST endpoint by invoking the appropriate services. It, it generally does three things. One, it will, will just simply function as a reverse proxy. So routing, routing each incoming request, like create an order, it will route that to the order service. It, can, it will also implement edge functions such as security, potentially other things like rate limiting and so on. And then it might also implement API composition. So imagine that a client wants to know the status of an order. So that order status could actually be scattered across multiple services. So the order service would know some parts of the order status the kitchen service would in, in the food to go application would know about the status of the order at the kitchen. Like when is it in the middle of being prepared? Is it, you know, what, what's the estimated ready for pickup time? And then the delivery service will know about the estimated delivery time. And then perhaps if it's in the, if it's in actually, if, the, if it's in the process of being delivered, where it is and then say the accounting service would know other things so it's like the status is scattered across 
in that example, four different services. So rather than the client making four different requests, it just says to the API gateway, give me the order status. And then the API gateway goes and makes requests to each of those services, gathers back the four re responses and returns the response to the client. Um, so, and that has two benefits. One is the sort of performance or efficiency aspect, particularly if it's like a mobile device trying to making a request over a low, lower performance, higher latency mobile network. But it also implements, it basically is encapsulating the, the internals of the, of the architecture. The, so, the, so the clients are not aware of the individual services, which, which is a good thing because the architecture can evolve. I, I think one of the things you're talking about in this case is a issue you identify in the book by the name chattiness. Yes. Go into more. What, what is chattiness? So essentially there ends up being, a, there's often a mismatch in granularity between uh, the data that needs to that the client wants to render on on a page or a screen, and the fine-grained nature, uh, or relatively fine-grained nature of your services. So, in other words, especially on the on a, with a desktop user experience, you think about like the Amazon detail product detail page is displaying a heck of a lot of information basic product information, delivery estimates, when you last ordered it, perhaps whole bunch of, you know, reviews, two or three different kinds of recommendations, seller rankings, so on and so forth, right? You could imagine that each of those individual pieces of data resides in a service. And so one page can easily correspond to potentially tens or more services. And, and so if the client had to get each one of those pieces of data individually, that results in a lot of round trips, which for certain types of clients, especially mobile devices would, would be generally not a good idea, right? It's potentially poor user experience. There's the risk of like, you know, draining the battery faster and so on. So the idea is with, with the API gateway pattern is that each client can be given its own optimized API, which in some cases, I mean, um, applications I've worked on, it's almost like for each screen, there is isn't there is a dedicated API endpoint that so the, the client can just so give me the data and it gets back a blob, you know, relatively large blob of data that's basically joined from or composed by calling multiple services. So in the monolith, you would do a lot of this integration in SQL where you'd hit an endpoint and it would go and join a bunch of tables together. It sounds like what you're doing here is you're moving that joining function into this API gateway and you put the long haul hop in front of that and then it's going out in the data center and doing super short hops to pull all these chunks together and merge them. Yeah, that's essentially right. And so, yeah, one place to do that is in the API gateway or the API gate gateway routes to a service that implements this composition. Another issue you bring up is consistency, which you don't have in the monolith because you're 
always doing commits and leaving the database in a nice consistent state. Do you have a problem where this API gateway is going and hitting all these services and it gets back things that don't all quite make sense together because they reflect things that are in different states of convergence toward a, a consistency? Yeah. So essentially, yeah, in a monolith, you retrieve data, you're, you're most likely going to do that within a transaction that will give you a transactionally consistent view of the data. Whereas in a microservice architecture with API composition, multiple transactions of you know, one in each service are being executed. And so you theoretically could get sort of an inconsistent view of the data. Is there a solution to that, or is that a trade-off that you need to make to get these other benefits? I mean, f fundamentally, that that's a consequence of having split the system up in, in the way that you have chosen to split it up. I mean, one of the interesting things is, say, for a given set of requirements, there are potentially multiple different ways of decomposing the system. So for instance, you know, in, in this class, I, I teach this three-day class where, the, where students come up with a microservice architecture for the given a set of requirements. I think that, you know, typically the class will come up with three or four different architectures. And each one represents a sort of different set of trade-offs in the sense that some queries might correspond to a single service, but other queries correspond, will require gathering data from multiple services. And then that's in architecture A. You know, in version B, it's different. It's divided up differently and which impacts different queries. And, and so, so essentially, if you find that because of the way that you've divided up your system into services, it results in a query that gives you unacceptable inconsistencies, you, you might actually have to go back and revisit your decomposition and adjust the service boundaries so that you, you have the consistency that you need. We did a show a little while back about the PostgreSQL query planner one of the takeaways from that show is the query planner is brilliant at costing out different ways of getting information and doing something that's pretty smart to get you all the information you want. And if you didn't have that, you'd be looking at, hmm, okay, I'll grab all the users and then I'll go out and get all these addresses one at a time. And you probably would do a worse job than the query planner. Are we taking a step backwards here when we decompose <laughs> and, and now we are test telling our developers to become a, essentially a SQL query optimizer, but maybe they're not as good at it as the one in Postgres? I, I see the analogy there, right? In the sense that I think basically it sounds like you just write some giant SQL query, hand it over to the query planner, and it figures it out as opposed to breaking it up. I wouldn't say it's exactly the same problem, but there's a certain kind of the, there are some analogies here in the sense that essentially things like transaction management joins reference maintaining referential integrity 
ends up being moved from the database where it's just all automatic and you don't think too hard about it up to the application level. So if you're using the Saga pattern, you, some aspects of what you're doing are more complicated. And then querying is more complicated. And then say ref, um, foreign key constraints you're now having to enforce those at the application level. So like when you create an order and it's got a customer ID, that that's in the order service and you can't have a foreign key constraint to the customer table anymore. So there's a bunch of stuff that you have to do at, at the application level, which makes things harder, right? But on the other hand, the assumption is that th there are benefits to splitting up, right? And, and hopefully the, the, the benefits outweigh the drawbacks. So as it, you know, for instance, if you're working on a service, hopefully the focus of your attention is on implementing, say, the complex business logic within the service and the sort of the the complicated stuff around sagas and quer and querying are a relatively small part of what you have to worry about. Even though like my whole book is, you could say it's on all this complicated stuff, but it's just that the idea, hopefully the complicated stuff is sort of on the periphery of your services and the, the, the meaty stuff that's implementing the business logic is actually the bulk of what you're having to do. Fair enough. I want to move on and ensure we cover as much as we can. One of the areas which is, in my experience, extraordinarily more complicated when you go to microservices is testing. What are the major differences in testing? And, and I'll say we've had a ton of shows on testing, almost all about testing program logic. What are the main differences from single program testing to microservice testing? Testing in a microservice architecture is simultaneously, I would argue, easier and it's harder. <laughs> so it's easier in the sense that a service is a relatively small amount of code. And, and so writing automated tests for it are a lot simpler uh, and they're, they're simpler and faster running than they would be if you had some monstrous monolithic application. So there is this notion that testability is enhanced by the microservice architecture. The complication comes from the fact that services don't often, often don't exist in isolation right, let's just say the order service is having to collaborate with the customer service. So there's a, there's a coupling there. Say the order service is dependent upon the API of the customer service. Whether that API is, is, is literally a REST API or perhaps it's, some, it's an asynchronous kind of API, there's still a dependency there. And so there's sort of a bunch of problems around that. Like, well, I want to test my order service, but it depends on the customer service. 
And then let's, shall we say, the customer service might depend on three other services. And suddenly you've got this whole tree of transitive dependencies just because you want to test one service. And that could actually get quite complicated quite quickly because you're having, in theory, you're having to provision all of these services. So one, one, one important trick there is is to you want a way to test services in isolation while being confident that when you put them together, um, they can actually communicate successfully. So there's a, there's a few different patterns there. Um, one key idea is consumer-driven contract testing, where the interaction between a, con well, a consumer, a client, and a service is captured by a set of contracts, which are basically, in the case of HTTP, um, example request response pairs. So it's like specification by example. And those, those examples or contracts are used to test both the service and the consumer in isolation. And provide, so if you're testing both with the same contracts, then in theory, fingers crossed, when you put them together, they can communicate. And then the other part of it is there's component testing for services, which is where you test a service in, in isolation, but, but you use test doubles for any of its dependencies. So the order service, for instance, would be tested in isolation um, with a test double for the customer service. And, and the test double would if it was HTTP, would be programmed to reply with canned HTTP responses for a given, you know, when it gets a request. Or if it's they're communicating via a message broker, it would be send back canned reply, pre-canned reply messages. Um, so there's a bunch of these new, newer testing techniques that you have to use, but the whole, the end result is you're able to test services in isolation while being confident that when you deploy them, they will actually communicate. This sounds very much like the use of mocking, which I'm familiar with in Java or Groovy. You have a library which will instantiate at runtime a class that implements an interface, but you can script out what you want that the methods on that class to do when you call them just for that test, and that could include returning a certain result or raising an exception. So you've abstracted that concept and moved it out to the HTTP server rather than the programming language. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so so like what you're describing, like with mock objects, like say with the Makita framework in Java, that's a particular form of test double but you can have other forms such as uh, a fake HTTP server. And then, for instance, there's the Wiremock project that um, was an open source project. It's basically Wiremock, oh, sorry, it's Mockito for HTTP. So that, that, that's pretty, pretty useful. And there's other ones like that as well. And then you can do the same thing with messaging as well. So if you've got services that are communicating via a message broker, it's pretty straightforward to have a test double that when it sees when it receives message X, it sends back message Y. When uh, you were talking about 
using these contracts, my first thought was, I am going to implement an HTTP endpoint, and I think the variable in the JSON document has one name, but the client has a different idea of what the name of that field is. I think you've solved that by forcing both ends of the endpoint to use the same contract, and that should detect a lot of bugs that you might find at compile time if you are compiling your whole thing into one big monolith. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's very true that, especially when you're using a statically typed language like Java, any any interface mismatches manifest themselves as compile time errors, which is really good, right? But in a distributed system, you, you don't have that kind of guarantee, especially with well, the, other, the other key point is your system is not static. Services are constantly being updated and, and so preventing APIs from accidentally being made, um, like introducing breaking changes accidentally in, in your APIs, it's really critical that you prevent that from happening. And so consumer-driven contract testing is, is a, is, does exactly that. It prevents the, t the service team from accidentally changing the API in a way that would break any of the, that, that, the consumers. We did a show a little while ago about Jenkins. We had some fairly general discussions about the concept of a pipeline. Jenkins can execute any kind of pipeline. You have some views in your book about what the deployment pipeline would look like in a microservice architecture Talk about that. What, what is the pipeline that you recommend? So, so in general, I mean, a deployment pipeline is essentially a, a series of automated test suites. And the idea is as you go from left to right, the test suites potentially get, get slower and well, more sophisticated and slower, but get more production-like. So maybe the first stage of your, your deployment pipeline might just execute unit tests. So they, they execute blindingly fast, but, but essentially don't catch a whole class of errors. And so then you have the next phase executes more, more sophisticated yet more expensive kinds of tests. And so a lot of the so key idea there is that yeah, you can go implement the deployment pipeline using pick your favorite CI server um, or, cloud, or cloud provider. Um, it doesn't really matter too much which one you do. But the you know, important idea is that essentially each service has its own deployment pipeline. So it's being built and tested independently of all of the other services. And then, oh, I suppose I should say the ideally the final stage of the deployment pipeline actually pushes that service into production. <laughs> I mean, in theory, it could all all of these different per service deployment pipelines could feed into some kind of end-to-end -end testing environment, like what you would commonly call a staging environment. But you know, there's a lot of thinking around that. Is that instead of having a staging environment, which is only a, a rough approximation of production, 
and also the fact that end-to-end -end tests tend to be kind of slow and kind of brittle, perhaps it can be much more effective to just deploy into production in a very disciplined way using like canary deployments or blue-green deployments and with careful monitoring so that if there are problems, you can quickly roll back. Moving on to another area you provide patterns is productionizing or production readiness. How do you define production readiness? Well, there's all this, what should we say? You know, there's one key, absolutely key part of what a service does is implement, is, is the business logic, right? I mean, that, that's like the whole reason for it existing. But then in order to be sort of deployable in, in a real application, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you have to deal with. For instance, security. Obviously, you know, that's obviously one really critical thing, right? Is services need to be secure. So that's one part of being production ready that's separate from the business logic. And then another big part there, part there is observability. You know, in a sense, well, you always have to deal with sort of observability or monitorability even inside a monolith, except that it's a bit more complex in a microservice architecture because when requests come in, they can bounce around between services and so troubleshooting and and, and like figuring out where the latency is is being you know is high is much more complex. In a monolith, I suppose you just pro you run a profiler of some kind and you can track it down. But if requests are bouncing around between a whole bunch of services, it, it, it's not so obvious. And so there's a whole bunch of observability patterns that you have to implement, ranging from simple ones like having a health check endpoint that the runtime environment can periodically ping, like make a get HTTP GET request to, to verify that your service instance is healthy and is and can handle production traffic. There's a, you know, another pattern is log aggregation. So the logs from all of the services are being sucked up into a log aggregator where they're stored and they can be searched. Another critical pattern is distributed tracing. So, you know, each inbound request gets a request ID or a trace ID as it's called that gets propagated from one service to the next, ends up in log messages, and then that interacts nicely with log aggregation because then you can search for that um, request ID and see all of the relevant logs. Plus, the services report what they're doing to a distributed tracing server like OpenZipkin, which can then display traces, uh, and you can get the time breakdown for a sampler request and you can see where the latency is being spent you know it is occurring and so on um, and then there's other patterns like application metrics right gathering metrics at the app or the sort of business level metrics about what your services are doing and then feeding them into a metrics database where they can be aggregated visualized and alerted one that you didn't mention that I was going to ask you about is the externalized configuration pattern. Oh, yeah. Talk about that one. So the basic idea with that, which is, which is really one that that's, you, you'd have to deal with in a monolithic application as well, 
is the application should just be built once right? well, by the first stage of the deployment pipeline, and then you can run it in multiple environments. But what that means is, uh, say, the configuration properties of external services like the database server can't be hardwired into the source code because they're different in each environment. And so they need to be passed in at runtime somehow. And so you need an externalized configuration mechanism for doing that, which might be something as simple as setting environment variables. That works quite nicely in a Docker environment where it's easy to, whether you like, say if you're using Kubernetes, right, you have a config map that defines some, some property values that then get injected into the container as environment variables. And then like if you're using Spring Boot, Spring Boot will just pick them up and make them available inside the Spring application context. But there's other mechanisms that you can use while well, config files that get injected in, or you can have, so those are sort of the push model, or there's the pool model where the, the service can go and request the, its configuration from a config server. I mean, so you've got a couple of different options there. What all these things, what ties them together that we've been discussing these last few minutes is enable you to manage, understand, and troubleshoot the application when you run it in the production environment. Is, is that a fair summary? Yeah, well, yeah, like, yeah, I suppose manage as in like, yeah, configure it and figure out what the heck it's doing. <laughs> okay, we're getting pretty close to the end of our time. I had a section of questions about anti-patterns Maybe I'll ask you, what is one of the most pernicious or most common anti-patterns that you observe? Well, I, I would say there's two. I mean, so one is technical, which is where you, you create an architecture where you have a set of services that are communicating via HTTP. And, and perhaps with the, with the assumption that networking is free. So you've taken a monolithic design, modularized it, and then given each module a REST API. So there you're likely to have performance problems because there's lots of network round trips. So latency will be horrible. Also, you've basically built a tightly coupled system with single points of, well, multiple points of failure. And then if you've really done a, a bad job of modularization, you basically end up with building a distributed monolith where changes to one service just ripple throughout the, the sort of all the chain of dependencies. And you end up having to make multiple changes to multiple services in lockstep. So you've, you've basically got a monolith that's made of services, which is like the West best of the worst of both worlds. Um, so there's sort of technical anti-patterns like that, but then, but then the, maybe the more challenging ones are more sort of organizational, political process, policy oriented, which I gave it a, a keynote gave this talk, Potholes pot in the Road from Monolithic Hell, a conference. 
And that, you know, an example of those, one of, one of them is called the Red Flag Law. And, that, and its name comes from the fact that when automobiles or self-driving vehicles first came out in sort of the early 19th century, that some jurisdictions passed the law where a pedestrian had to walk in front of the car holding a red flag. So you kind of had, presumably the, the vehicle could actually go faster than the pedestrian, <laughs> right? But, but you slowed it down because of the law. And I've seen this inside some organizations where it's like, yeah, we're going to have microservices, but then they don't change their policies or their processes, right? So for instance, they might just stick with manual testing, like automated, like many organizations, one of the biggest weaknesses is actually the lack of automated testing. So you've got this architecture that gives you the potential to deliver software really quickly but then you basically have someone walking in front of it with a red flag, but because you've got manual testing, or maybe you've got policies that say no deployments during business hours, and you can only deploy on the fourth Saturday of each month at midnight. So it's sort of like, you know, in a, in a sense, you're missing the point of the microservice architecture, and you, you're not going to properly benefit from it. Thank you for that. And we're getting pretty close to the end. Just to wrap up, we mentioned your company, Eventuate.io, Microservice.io, which has many patterns. Your book, where can listeners find your book? Oh, yeah. So if you go to microservices.io slash book, you will, you will find a description of the book and, and links to where, where you can buy it. Do you have any upcoming conference talks that listeners might want to attend? In in September, I will, you know, the full conference season. I'll, I'll be be at some conference or the other. Okay, well, Chris, thank you very much for speaking to Software Engineering Radio. Great, thank you. This has been Robert Blumen. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.